We are in Hebrews chapter 13, and I think the most disconcerting part about me not having notes this morning is my pride, and so the Lord is humbling me today. I really liked the notes that I had typed up. I think I had some very appropriate points and applications. It was really something. There you go. So let's see what the teaching turns out to be instead of what I wrote. I pulled up last week's notes because I am in the middle of covering a section that begins in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4. And I've grouped together verses 4, 5, and 6 because I believe they have a similar focus. As we studied the book of Hebrews over the last many years, there is a great deal of theology taught in the first ten chapters of the book. Theology that's trying to get a group of Christians refocused on Christ. They had come out of a Jewish background and they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but for some of them, the passing of time had made it easier to forget Jesus. They had come out of Judaism and faced persecution. In Hebrews chapter 10, it makes it clear these believers had gone through a gauntlet. They had stood with other believers who were being persecuted. Many of them had lost their wealth. They were persecuted themselves. And yet they had endured. But over the passage of time, even that wasn't enough. And some of them were being distracted by the reminder of what they had left in Judaism. The sacrifices and other things. It appears from the overall structure of the book that there was even an undercurrent for some people wondering, did we make a mistake? Maybe we need Jesus, but we need Jesus plus all of the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices. And the whole focus of the theology of the first ten chapters is that Jesus is all you need. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't do anything. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ that can provide forgiveness of sins. And by faith in Jesus Christ, that's everything. Chapter 11 then goes into a litany of individuals from the old covenant side of things who lived by faith. And the exhortation to the believers is that if they walked by faith, you can walk by faith. And whatever they had to endure, whatever God called them to do by faith, you in your own circumstances, in your own daily life, you can walk by faith. And I think the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 really sort of sums up from a Christian perspective, if your theology is right, so what? What's supposed to be the end result of all of that? Beginning of verse 12, it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and that's just talking about those Old Testament saints who walked by faith, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That really is what's supposed to be our focus if we understand all these truths. We're supposed to lay aside sin. And we understand if you've known Christ for a while, you still struggle with sin. You need to lay that aside. Anything else that entangles you, the idea is you're running a race and things are tripping up your legs and you're falling down. So all of that theology is supposed to help us live a certain way. And chapter 12 and 13 is really, in many respects, pointing out aspects of that life. And at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, there's a focus on the mindset that we don't live on this earth. We live here, we 
we are here, but we're not really a part of this. This isn't our future. This isn't our destiny. This isn't all there is. Our eyes are supposed to be on the heavenly Jerusalem where we will one day be with Jesus. This idea, Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. One day we're going to be in the presence of God. And so even though we have to endure life, we have to live through daily struggles, we have to lay aside sin, everything else, our focus is always supposed to be on the fact that one day we'll be there. That's our hope. That's what keeps us going. There, everything that we face isn't on this earth. We have an eternity in heaven with God and it's supposed to encourage us and it's supposed to enable us to walk by faith. And as we transition to the end of the book, it's not a traditional greeting, but the writer is really showing what a life of thankfulness to God looks like. God has provided us all these gifts. He's given us faith. He's given us His Son, Jesus Christ. He's atoned for our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. And in light of that, we're supposed to live lives of thankfulness to God. Hebrews chapter 13 at the beginning is pointing out what a life of thankfulness looks like. And the first few verses are focusing outwardly. We're supposed to be showing love to others, other believers, to strangers. And then we hit verses 4 through 6 of chapter 13. And it's still talking about love, but in a slightly different way. It's a sort of a negative, and there's a, it might appear at first, there's sort of an inward focus, but it's really a look-in-the-mirror focus. Trying to make sure that we don't live selfishly. Again, I don't have this week's notes, but I have a verse from last week's notes that I want to read because I think it summarizes something of the mindset that is being conveyed at the beginning of chapter 13. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 said this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. That is the danger for any of us, is we get sort of tunnel vision and we only see ourselves. And when I talk about looking in the mirror, there's a type of looking in the mirror that's helpful. It's a reflection and we're looking for sin and we're looking to lay it aside and we're looking to see what is not in conformity with Christ and we want to put it away. But there's another type of looking in the mirror that just admires ourselves. We start just thinking about us, us, us. We're focused on us. That's what's being pushed aside here. That's not what's supposed to occur. And so as I was thinking of the way that I would teach verses 4 through 6, and we covered verse 4 last week, I'll give a little background. I phrased it this way. There, there's two warning signs of selfishness in the life of a believer. Two warning signs of selfishness in the life of the believer. These are things that if you see them in your life, you know you're off track. You're focused too much on you, not on Christ, not on loving others. And the first warning sign, again, I covered it in detail last week. I'm just going to briefly give an overview this week. Is that you, the first warning sign is you do not respect the marriage relationship. You do not respect the marriage relationship. Verse 4 says this. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. And I really emphasize two aspects of that. One, the institution of marriage as God ordained should be respected. We should have a high view of marriage. Certainly our society does not, but we don't follow society. We follow Christ. We follow the Lord. 
we have to agree with what God says about marriage. God's the one who made them male and female. And Jesus is the one who said, what God has joined together, let no man separate, meaning divorce should be eradicated from us. Believers are supposed to be committed to marriage. We honor marriage by showing the world that we treat it seriously, something the church in America has not done for decades. But God is the one who instituted marriage, so we honor marriage because God is the one who created it. I think it's fascinating. He even uses a picture of marriage to describe the mystery of the bride of Christ, the church and Christ. Every Christian should honor marriage, even if you're single. And one aspect of marriage that needs to be honored is the marriage bed. That's really the sexual relationship. That's exactly what he's talking about. The sexual relationship in marriage. There should be a respect for what God has ordained such that all sexual activity should be confined to that between a husband and a wife. Adultery is any sexual relations of a married person with someone other than their spouse. Fornication is just unmarried people engaging in sexual relations. They're both the perversions of God's ideal. And the writer is saying, particularly amongst Christians... Unbelievers do what unbelievers do. It doesn't make it less sinful. But amongst believers, we have to set the standard. There shouldn't be adultery. There shouldn't be fornication. And as I covered last week, what makes this challenging is not just the outward act, but it's the issues of the heart. Because Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. That's the challenge because we live in a society where that type of thing is being flaunted at us. And Christians can't fall in those ways. And if we do fall, we have to repent and turn from it. Ultimately, the reason that is given there is a reminder that God's going to judge adultery and fornication. God is going to judge it. For unbelievers, it's going to be a horrific judgment. And I don't know that I emphasized this enough at the end last week, but I want to highlight it. As believers, if you've engaged in sexual sin, understand that will be judged. But let me say it a different way. And this is what's important because many of us come from backgrounds where we weren't saved at three and lived a godly life our whole life. We engaged in sexual sin at different points. We have memories of sin that has plagued us. We have memories of things that we've done in the past and we can't erase it from our minds. Let me offer you this encouragement, but it's a, it's a warning that God judges those things. If you know Jesus Christ, repent of those things and understand this. It's been judged, but it was judged at Calvary. Every one of those sins was nailed to the cross. I don't have it in my notes. There's a verse in Colossians. Forgive me for not knowing the verse reference. I didn't go to Awana when I was a kid. But it talks about all of those things being taken away and being nailed to the cross. As you think through your life, every circumstance of a sexual sin where you know that Satan could point at you and say, guilty, 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 and he's right, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not an excuse to sin more. That's just a reminder that even though we've lived in a fallen world, we have forgiveness in Christ. And then the writer in verse 5 and 6 
talks about what might at first seem to be a different issue, but I think it's really tied in the same. Follow along with me in your Bible as I read. Verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? Now, I think it's interesting that many of us know these verses, but quite often we wouldn't put these verses in the context of money, at least those promises about not fearing man, and the Lord is my helper, and I won't be afraid. Might seem like an odd thing to tie in with making your character free from the love of money, but actually it fits well together. All of this deals with the issue of the heart. And so the second mark of warning sign of selfishness, and this is really the last thing I have by way of a note because I had the second point in last week's notes, warning sign of selfishness in the life of believers, you're consumed with worry about money. You are consumed with worry about money. It's interesting, the writer ties together within two verses the sexual relationship and then the love of money. And if you were to go at other points in Scripture, you would see that those types of things come together. That there are other references where there's a reference to forsake sexual sin and forsake greediness, forsake covetousness. And I think one of the reasons is because they all go back to the same heart issue, which is you want something that isn't yours, potentially. So he says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. And character is just your way of life, the manner of how you live, the sum total of what you do. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, what the writer is saying is if someone was looking at your life, they shouldn't say that person's consumed with money. They love money. That's all they think about is money. We're supposed to eradicate that from our way of life. Now, it's interesting, of course. It doesn't say make sure your character is free of money. Now, for some of us, the Lord has taken care of that. We don't have money anyway. (laughs) But that's not what the writer is really addressing. He's actually addressing something that whether you have all the money in the world or you have not two cents to rub together, it's equal sin. If you're consumed with the love of money. I think it's interesting. If you go back to, and you don't have to turn there necessarily. Probably, I'll tie together a couple verses. Jesus said there is such a thing as a great commandment. He was asked about this. What's the great commandment? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus said, really, these are the centerpiece. Those are the two pillars on which all of the entire Old Testament is based. All the law and the prophets are based on that. And really, when we get into this concept of an inordinate love of money, an improper love of money, what we realize is this is really a violation of the great commandment. Because our minds are now off of God and they're on to something. And that runs afoul of numerous, perhaps, of the Ten Commandments. For example, you're not supposed to make an idol. That's a given. 
I think a love of money is really a form of idolatry. And that's what the writer is rebuking here. Your heart's affections are supposed to be on the Lord. Now you've put them on money. That cannot be. I think it's interesting that in the Ten Commandments it says you shall not steal. Which I think goes hand in hand, although it's separate, with you shall not covet. Exodus 20.17 records this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You see, really, that ties into verses 4 through 6 of Hebrews 13. Coveting your neighbor's wife gets into the sexual sin area. Coveting your neighbor's goods gets into the love of money area. So these are not new issues that the writer of Hebrews is pulling up on the table and saying, hey, let me deal with something that nobody's ever dealt with. He's really going back to foundational things about the moral universe that God created. He's making it clear that we cannot have divided loyalties as Christians. Jesus said this in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That's the ultimate issue Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6 are dealing with. That's what's going on. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money because if it's not free from the love of money, it means you love money, which means you can't be loving God. Which means your heart is in the wrong place and you're sinning and you need to repent. I always think it's fascinating when you look at our world system and you look at Scripture. Because if you were going to think, and I would never encourage you to do it, but if you were ever going to think like Satan, and you wanted to trip up people, and all of the lust of their flesh, you'd make America. Now, do I think God has had his hand on America? I do. I love this country. I think one of the reasons God has blessed America in part is because of our love for the nation of Israel. But I don't think America is the new Jerusalem. In heaven, it's not America. And what we see in our society is a materialism that fits perfectly with a sin nature. Because what we're told constantly is whatever you have, it's not enough. You need more, more, more. If you watch TV, what happens in any TV show if you're not on a pay channel? Commercials. Non-stop. Why is that? Because people want you to want what they're selling. It's inevitable. If you listen to the radio, there are commercials. If you get a newspaper, there are commercials. If you go on the internet, you've got 7,000 ads all around every little news story. Because the heart is never satisfied. The first, I've shared this before in a different context, the very first passage of scripture I ever taught when I felt like I was called possibly into ministry or teaching. I met with a godly man. He's since gone home to be with the Lord. I still remember the restaurant on Blackstone Avenue in Fresno. I met with him and he said, have you ever taught before? Because I told him I felt like I was called to be a teacher. No. 
He said, let's fix that. Let's get you an opportunity. And so the very first passage that I ever had an opportunity to teach was 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I remember as I was studying that, I probably have the old NIV Bible in my office here at the church that I used to use. And I remember writing in the margin, the Apostle Paul nailed our society. Now, was he writing to America? No. He was writing to the church. He was actually writing to Timothy, who would be teaching the church. But he was writing 2,000 years ago. But he said, but realize this. He said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll begin at verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That really summarizes our economic system. Love yourself, love stuff, love money because money buys the stuff. And on and on it goes. And this is where we live. But when we come back to Hebrews 13.5, it says make sure that your character is free from the love of money. And so you have to look in the mirror and you have to ask yourself, are you consumed with thoughts about money? It's fascinating. If you see very wealthy people, they're consumed with money. But you also see that with very poor people. They're consumed with money. Our society constantly tells you you don't have enough money. I remember before we had kids, people saying, you got to start saving for college. And then I had daughters. Whoop, got to start saving for weddings. Well, you're working, got to save for retirement. And on and on. It's like our whole life is just a sum total of how much money do you have in the bank. And while that is the American way, and in no way am I suggesting that prudent planning and stewardship is wrong. Of course, it's required by Scripture. This accumulation of money for money's sake so that we will have comfort is contrary to Scripture. In fact, Jesus gave a parable, an illustration of a man who had great wealth and what did he decide? I've got to build a bigger barn because i got more stuff. And if I build a bigger place, I'll have more stuff. That's how some people are with 401ks or with bank accounts. Or with houses or anything else. I've got this. Well, I better start another one. I think it's interesting what Jesus says about things. Because he knows people worry about what they don't have. And people worry about what they have. Jesus in Matthew 6. I'll start at verse 31. The passage really that Jesus explaining goes before that. But in verse 31 it says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? In other words, you shouldn't even spend any time worrying about those daily things that you think you have to have. Verse 32, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
if you're consumed with the love of money, I would wager, although I don't gamble, I would wager with you that you're consumed about tomorrow and you're worrying about tomorrow. All of these things come back to an issue of the heart. And again, our society does not help us. For some of us, God deals with these issues in a method sort of like Job. Just takes it all away. Does that mean you can't be a lover of money? No. If all you do is think about what you used to have, that's exactly what you're doing. You're loving money. And God will make some people prosperous. Remember, Abraham had great wealth. Great wealth. And it wasn't because he was ungodly. God just blessed him. Some people will be blessed by God, but if you're stockpiling the money and not using it to advance his kingdom, you understand you're loving it. Interesting verse in Ecclesiastes. You can just write down the verse for reference. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. In other words, no matter how much you have, you want more. And if you think, well, when I get a million dollars in the bank, then I'll be satisfied, you won't. Or if you think two million, no, you won't. You're only going to be satisfied when you're satisfied with God himself. In fact, the antidote for this love of money is found in verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Being content with what you have. This really is the dividing line for where you stand today. Is your heart drifting towards selfishness? Is your heart focused on the Lord? Are you content with what you have? Contentment is a challenge because somebody else always has something that you don't have. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says godliness actually is a means of great gain. It's not talking financial gain, but it's a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We are supposed to be content. Nowadays, most people don't read actual physical newspapers. I remember I used to get a newspaper. I finally had to stop reading the Sunday ads because every time I opened up the sections, I was like, man, I need more power tools. Look at my lawnmower. Look at this one. This is great. That's silly, and yet it was true. Every Sunday I was discontent because it's like, man, I don't have this. And this is on sale and I need that. It just creeps in this discontentment that says what God has provided for me today isn't enough. Now, is this suggesting that you can never desire something else? No, it's the focus of the desire. So, for example, it's not necessarily sinful to say, you know what? be nice one day to have a, a newer car, this older car. But if that's all you think about, it's taken a turn. And it's become a love, a covetousness, a, an inordinate desire, which is contrary to God's plan. Being content with what you have. I think this is Jesus' focus of don't worry about tomorrow. God will provide what you need today. God will take care of you. 
but be content with how he provides because he might not provide the way you want. You might think that the solution is for this particular financial struggle to go away immediately. That might not be God's plan. God may allow you to depend on him by staying under the financial hardship for an extended period of time. It doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It just means you have to be content. Okay, Lord, I trust you. Scripture over and over again points us back to the greatest possession we have, which is our salvation in Jesus Christ. I don't know who said it, and I don't know why it sort of popped in my head. There was a, I don't know if it's an actual story, but I've heard it many times in my life. You know, wealthy man was asked, how much money are you going to leave behind? He said, all of it. How much money are you going to take to heaven with you? How much gold? How many possessions? We're not taking anything. We came into the world with nothing. We're going out of the world with nothing. So in between, whatever God's give us, we're to be content. And what's fascinating to me is the verses that follow are really explaining what we should do in those moments when contentment eludes us. We're trying to make our characters free from the love of money, which requires us to be content with whatever it is that God has given us. And the writer provides some explanatory comments based upon Scripture that are supposed to guide our hearts. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, meaning God has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now, in my version of the Bible, those are in capital letters, which normally means it's a quotation from the Old Testament. And the reality is, is this is probably a summary of Old Testament teaching more than a direct quote. But there are similarities between this verse and exhortations that were given in the Old Testament. For example, Moses was giving a charge to Joshua. That Joshua was about to take over. Moses knew he wasn't going with the people in the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 31.8 it says, The Lord is, is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. There are similar references in the book of Genesis. I could give you a verse reference if I have my notes. But the idea is that we as believers have to understand that God has promised that if you are his child, he's not turning his back on you. That's of great comfort if you're hurting financially. One of the most egregious things I've seen over the years, and I'm not a world traveler. I've been a few places in the world. But in the country of El Salvador, the first time I went on a missions trip there, went with Mike Schott to a Catholic cathedral, whatever you call the Catholic church, in a city called Zacatecaluca. And there was a lot to be distressed about in that church because you realize people are in bondage. But El Salvador, in that context, is a very, very poor country. People don't have anything. And yet, as you looked around the church, and this is, I've since seen in many Catholic churches around the world, there were boxes everywhere for you to put money in. 
that was your hope. And on a computer somewhere, I have a picture. And I had a picture of, it was, I think it was supposed to be purgatory. And down in purgatory, there were flames and obviously some torment. And it was fascinating because I was looking and there was a picture and there was a priest with a rope around his waist and the rope descended down into purgatory. And there was a little box for you to put your money in. That if you put money in, that's how you get some hope. The church will help you if you drop money in the bucket because it's only the priest that can pull you up. Praise the Lord that that's a lie. I feel for the people who are in bondage to that type of deception. But our status with God is never dependent upon whether we can bring money to the church and put some more in the offering plate. Praise the Lord for that. Whether you have millions of dollars or whether you don't know how to pay for a cup of coffee, God will never desert you nor will he ever forsake you if you are covered in the blood of Christ. That's how you're free from the love of money when you realize I've got the most valuable thing already. You know, Jesus told the parables about people finding treasure and sold everything to get the true treasure. I think what the writer of Hebrews is warning us about is don't be consumed by the love of money because it's irrelevant. It's pointless. You've got Christ. In fact, he is so bold in verse 6 to say that because of the fact that God won't leave us nor forsake us, we speak with confidence. Not timidly, not shaking. We can confidently proclaim this as God's children The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Now, quite often, we think of that verse in the context of doing some great thing for the kingdom of God. Okay, I can go and slay some dragon of something because I'm not afraid. It's fascinating that in this context, this is about the love of money. You don't have to worry about what man would do to you, even in the financial arena. You don't have to worry about money. Not only because Jesus said, don't worry. Worrying is a sin. But God's our helper. Stated in in another place, if God's for us, who who can be against us? What, What are we worried about? I talk about these things and I know more about these struggles now at this age than I did 20 or 30 years ago. And I can identify a little bit with what the Apostle Paul says in Scripture where he says, you know, I know how to get along in abundance and I know how to get along without much. But I know that if you're not careful... Our society will make compliance with this verse almost impossible. Because everything in our society says you need money. Everything about our society says what you have is too old or too worn out or not nice enough or not shiny enough. 
and you need more, 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 more. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is if your heart goes in that direction, you're just consumed by yourself because you're just thinking of you. The reality is you should recognize if we can think clearly and God can give us illumination that we already have everything. What do we have to fear? Can you lose your salvation? No, you can't. Are your sins going to be counted against you if you know Christ? No. There's now no condemnation. What do we have to be afraid of? Nothing. So let me encourage you. Do some careful examination of your heart. I recognize we are not an affluent church. I don't doubt there are some people who are affluent. But I know there are a lot of people who are struggling. Tonight we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. If you've been around Lakeside, you understand every time we take the Lord's table, we take up an offering for a benevolent fund to have money to help those in our church who are hurting. There is a practical reality that money, in some respects, is required to do certain things. What the writer of Hebrews is doing is not telling us money is inherently evil. It's the love of money. That's the danger. That's the heart of the matter. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. I read part of this earlier, but 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10 really summarizes this idea of money. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10 says this, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Verse 7, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Verse 8, If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The warning to us is don't let that be you. Join me in a closing prayer, please. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you've provided for us. Lord, I thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us for your children. Lord, I know the struggle of my own heart. I feel a sense of responsibility to provide for my wife and my daughters, and I want to provide them the things they need. I understand, Lord, the struggle, and I pray that you'll help me lead by example. And Lord, I pray that you'll help every one of us even in the midst of paying our bills, even in the midst of looking at what we don't have, I pray, Lord, that you'll constantly remind us that we have everything with you. Lord, I pray that we would be mindful to meet the needs of others in our midst. If you've blessed us with an abundance, I pray that we would be generous. But Lord, even if we don't have much, I pray that you help us not to be consumed by thoughts about money. Lord, we thank you that you've provided Jesus Christ. And I pray for each one of us here that we would be content with what you've provided. We love you, Lord, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.